And we welcome you to the Wednesday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. I'm really happy to be sitting opposite two good friends uh, and one very frequent uh, guest to the morning show. That would be Doug Instinus, who is, of course, director of the Racine Theater Guild. And with him today, Kim Instinus, associate professor of theater at Carthage. And uh, they are here together on the morning show to talk about a really incredible trip, which they experienced not long ago. Uh, they made their way to Edinburgh, Scotland, uh, Kim Instinus with a group of students from Carthage. It was actually a J-term in June sort of a J-term course that took them to uh, the so-called Fringe Festival in Edinburgh, Scotland. And Doug made his way over there for 10 days of that three-week period. And so they together experienced what has been described as the largest and most important uh, artistic and theatrical festival in the world. And we're going to hear from them directly uh, just how large and how amazing and even sometimes crazy this festival is that draws in performers from all around the world and actually not just theatrical performers. And if all of this sounds vaguely familiar, it might be because uh, earlier in the summer we had a conversation uh, with four people involved in the University of Wisconsin Parkside's production of Boswell, which went to the uh, Fringe Festival. And the... Uh, uh, Carthage Theater Department sent Eric Simonson's Up and Away. And uh, so we want to make special mention of those two local productions that were part of this year's uh, Fringe Festival. So Doug Instinus, Kim Instinus, we welcome both of you to the morning show. Good morning. Morning. Thank you. Kim, I got to talk with you first directly, although I hope your proud, happy husband will <laughs> chime in. Um, earlier this year, you were named uh, Carthage's Distinguished Teacher of the Year, which is a, of course, tremendous honor. And uh, I just know so many people who were thrilled uh, about that. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about when you first heard that this honor was going to uh, be bestowed on you? I know once upon a time they used to spring it on people as a complete surprise. They are, have chosen to not do it that way anymore. <laughs> right. No. Um Provost Timmerman came to the costume shop, actually, and uh, um, if you know where the costume shop is at Carthage, it's it's a little bit off the beaten path, <laughs> and so I, I, I was a little surprised because I wasn't sure why he was there. <laughs> you, you, would, you wouldn't uh, stumble into the costume shop on your way to any place else. <laughs> no, you, will, you would not. You have to make a special trip to make it to the costume shop. So he came in and just started talking to me and sort of told me, and that was in March, and, you know, told me that I was going to be the Distinguished Teacher of the Year. And um, I have to admit, I was flabbergasted. And then that was March, and I had to keep a secret until May, <laughs> which was probably the hardest two months of my life, <laughs> right. trying to keep it a secret from everybody for two months. So. Although not a secret from Doug, I would assume. Uh, no, he. I did ask special requests to tell my family. So, <laughs> And I couldn't tell for two months. <laughs> How hard it is not to brag about your oh. wife. I know something you don't know. Yeah, that is tough, but that's just 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 great. So let's just learn a little bit about how you got into this whole business of costume design. I know you studied it in college because part of your time at UW-Whitewater was with my best friend Marshall Anderson, who's still the costume that's head there. Right. But uh, But I don't know what got you on this path in the first place. Oh, well, um, I was... 
uh, I was raised in Midwest or like uh, the middle of Wisconsin, central Wisconsin, um, and I was part of a 4-H club there, which everybody when I was a kid was part of a 4-H club or part of FFA, right, uh, Future Farmers, right? So did you grow up on a farm? I mean, when you were a um, farmer or, or just I, a rural girl? I was a rural girl. We had farm animals and we did that kind of thing, but um, I mostly did uh, 4-H for the sewing and, uh, you know, knitting and sort of craft kind of things. And so when I went to college, um, of course, I was a poor college student. I needed a job. I went to the job fair on campus, and the costume shop was there looking for someone to sew. And I thought, wow, you know, like, who knew I could get paid to do this, <laughs> right? Um, I had no idea, actually, that uh, you could be a costume designer, that anybody did that, you know, from from anywhere. Um and so when I asked, you know, I went to apply, they asked me what the most complicated garment I had made was. I told them I made my um, brother's three-piece suit for eighth grade graduation, and they said, you're hired. <laughs> because nobody had ever come to them and said, I've made a three-piece suit as wow. an 18-year-old, you know. So, huh. um, And I started working in the costume shop. I figured out that you could be a costume designer, and I never looked back. I was going to be an English major. I changed my major. I worked in the costume shop all the time. Um, And then I decided I wanted to go to graduate school, and it's just, I mean, I guess it's history, right? (laughs) Like, that's if I had not had that job or not seen that job application, I probably would be an English teacher now. Wow. Ahead of that, so you were going to be an English major, so you had at least some interest in literature and the written word. Did you have much of an interest in theater before that? No, no, not at all. Um, I mean... I was in the pit band. <laughs> I played, you know, oboe in the pit band. Um, but no, not at all. Huh. I had no idea that that's what I was going to do with my life. <laughs> right. Well, and it occurs to me that I suppose somebody theoretically could be a costume designer and not be all that interested in the theater or not even all that aware of, in a sense, the theatrical world. But I assume as time has gone on, you've been drawn into kind of theater in in the whole i mean right. not just your little slice of it in terms of the costume design oh right yeah absolutely i mean i guess i i liked musicals you know i think some people start there because that's a that's a more mainstream way in but actually uh and i i guess you know i i did like shakespeare we read a lot of shakespeare in high school in my english class and so i kind of understood that um but i definitely dove more into it and and really enjoy designing all kinds of shows now so yeah so what has been the aspects of costume design that have felt completely natural versus those aspects of it where you had a lot to learn and maybe you know had had the most room to grow well definitely i definitely um had experience sewing and i think um some natural talent, I guess, is in that area from, you know, sewing from age eight. You know, I, I had a lot of experience in that. I love research. So I can do research all day and all night, right? I could research anything. I love to do research. Probably my, my weak link is, you know, sort of fantasy, um, outside the box kind of um, design. You know, I like to do historical um, period stuff, but, you know, trying to do, so I I think I had to learn a lot in that area. Hmm. Um, and I think I did actually, uh, do in graduate school, we had, uh, I had a really great mentor who made you stretch all those boundaries. So, Hmm. 
So when it comes to you to design costumes for a given show, at least in brief, and I'm, I'm, in fact, it really has to be in brief. I'm sure you're <laughs> going to have to really simplify what I'm sure is a complicated process. But essentially, what happens between that time that you have a, a blank sheet of paper in front of you and that paper gets filled with some kind of design, which then you ultimately build? Typically, what happens between those two points? Okay, I can do this. Um, uh, well, you start by reading the play, obviously, and then you have production meetings with the rest of your production team, which includes the director and the other designers in lighting and set and props and those kind of places. Um, and you get uh, the concept from the director. What? How are we approaching this particular play? Um, and once I know what that concept is, I go away. I do a lot of research. I, you know... Uh, thank God for the internet because, you know, you get to do a lot more. Uh, it used to be you had to go to the library and make photocopies. But um, uh, I still go to the library, don't worry, and um, do a lot of research on each of the characters and the play and um, social history and etiquette. And, you know, it's not just about designing the clothes that the characters are wearing. It's also knowing why they wore them, in what context they wore them. Um, did they get it handed down to them? Did they buy it new? Like, there's just a whole list of things. Um, I always say that I could also use a psychology degree um, <laughs> to help me with this. Would be great. Um, and then I go back. Then we go back to the production meeting and we look at research, and then we look at sketches, and then we'll look at fabric and color choices. And um, I'll do a final. Finally, the paper will be full of a rendering that's got full color and fabric choices and then the director of course you know uh, weighs in on whether they like that or they want something else or um and so that's how it gets to that point right and then that is sort of like a ground plan um gets actually taken to the costume shop and the costume gets built from that there hmm. so that rendering that's how that rendering happens right of course, when we see up close a set on a stage, it isn't, for instance, stairs on a stage. They're not the same as the stairs in your home. And the wall is not the same as a wall in your home. Uh, what is the difference between the costumes that actors wear on the stage and the actual clothes that someone might have actually worn in that time and place in which the, the, the play is set? What is... The diff if there are significant differences? There are a few differences. Um, the clothes that someone wears um, are, you know, of course, made um, to be worn, but not made to be worn eight performances a week mm -hmm. and laundered, you know, every other day. And, um, and so when we build something or even if we buy something, we if, if you looked on the inside, the inside would be different. You know, the mm. inside would be a little more supportive. It would be, um, it would have, you know, pit pads for sweat. It would have, <laughs> you know, um, so things that maybe we wouldn't wear in, in, in real life. It's also, the costume is also really um, about the character. And so there are going to be character choices made um, to add to those costumes. So even if it's a 60s dress, it's a 60s dress that, you know, a character from that play wears. And maybe there's a little, you know, maybe there's a color that they like or there's a, a pin that they're going to wear to go with it. And so um, I think as humans, we wear those same kinds of things. We make those choices. But as a costume designer, I'm making the choice for the character to... Mm. And does it make a big difference that you are 
designing something that is going to be seen from a distance more than we would see a piece of clothing from somebody we just encounter in real life? Oh, yeah, sure. You, the, um, making scale choices, making dis, um, pattern choices, you know, um, on a on an opera stage, you're never going to see a little tiny flower print on something. <laughs> so you're always going to choose something bigger in scale, you know, um, a bigger flower, a bigger stripe, a bigger um, whatever. Um, Lots of times distress, you know, um, we will have to distress the clothes or um, age the clothes because, you know, you went to the store and you bought a brand new flannel shirt, but the farmer in the play has been wearing that flannel shirt for 25 years. Mm. So you have to distress that. And, and sometimes you can, in, in, a, in a closer setting, you're going to see that distressing a little bit better than from, you know, again, 30 feet away in an audience. So, Can I throw in something? Please. Because I've worked with a lot of costume designers. Kim, <laughs> Kim is different in a way that... I think what you're getting at is when they say, well, it's only theater, you know, that doesn't fly with Kim. Um, Kim is, I don't care if if they're 50 feet away. You're going to make that hem the way it's supposed to be. You're going to line it the way it's supposed to be. I don't care if if they only wear it for for five minutes. It's going to be done correctly. Not every costume designer does that. Ah. It's kind of like, okay, we'll use the cheap material and you'll stand in the back and and nobody Ah. will see it. But, uh, you know. None of the students get away with that with Kim. <laughs> uh, so be forewarned. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So you're going to line that puppy. <laughs> so how much, Kim, of your time at Carthage, for instance, is spent in the construction phase? And how much of that construction are you actually doing versus other students or maybe other employees, for that matter, uh, in the sure. costume shop? Um well, we, we usually spend about four weeks constructing a show um, from, it just depends, you know, if it's, if it's, uh, if we build everything, you know, in the show. Right now we're doing um, the Costumes for a Doll's House 2, and we're building everything. So we're starting with the underwear, they're working on that this week. Um, and so we spend, we, we have about five weeks to do that show before we get to dress rehearsal. I think four weeks, four and a half weeks, something like that. So, um, you know, we're we're constructing that for that amount of time. Um, I have had the great fortune to have um, Nicole Phillips in, uh, um, who is my shop manager for the last five years. We've had a shop manager and she's been the one for three of that. So thank goodness I do less of the actual construction part of it because now I can focus on, um, you know, working with designers and teaching my classes. Um, so she does a lot of the um, shop work and the draping, actually. She does a lot of the draping. And then the students do all the sewing. Like our students are, they do everything. They And um, a lot of them do um, a lot of the draping as well. Um, and actually one of them is going to learn to tailor. She's going to make, um, there's one man in a doll's house too, and she's going to make his suit and learn how to tailor. So you know, the students don't get off at all at Carthage. <laughs> they have to do all the work. It sounds terrible, but they're learning as they're doing it, right? They're, that's what they're there to learn about. Um, and so, and, and even our um, acting students, um, our scene design students, our stage managers, um, they all work in the shop at some point and work on shows. And so, yeah. And we know I jump in there when I have to, but... <laughs> <laughs> And uh, Doug Instinus, as a as a experienced stage director, you're probably in a better position than than anybody I know to uh, to speak to the huge difference that costumes make in whether or not a production is effective. 
Oh, absolutely. And I think it even became more apparent to me when we went to Edinburgh. Um, you know, they didn't have any sets and very little, little lights. It was an actor up there in a costume. Um, and you immediately made an opinion about that actor by what they were wearing, you know, and uh, how they use their costume and what they look like and what period it was and what time, you know, what do I know about this person? What do they like? I mean, you see that right in the costume. And because, uh, you know, in Edinburgh, they were moving those shows in and out and uh, there wasn't much set. So it, it all relied on the costuming. So Never it's very it. important. Yeah. I'm always very biased about this. I always say, you can do a play with an actor in a costume. <laughs> and then the lighting person always says, but you have to have light. <laughs> you have to be able to see them. You have to be able to Fair see enough. them. All right. For those of you just joining us, uh, speaking today with uh, Kim Instanis and Doug Instanis, and we've been talking in this first half about uh, Kim Instanis uh, recently being named uh, Distinguished Teacher of the Year at Carthage. She is Associate Professor of Theater, uh, where she is the head of the costume department, and um, and Doug Instanis, as of course I'm sure you know, is the director of the Racine Theater Guild, and we have both of them here today because of a trip that they took earlier this summer to Edinburgh, Scotland, to uh, what's known as the Fringe Festival, the biggest of all of the Fringe Festivals. There's many Fringe Festivals around the world, although it looks like the proper name for this event is the Edinburgh Festival Fringe, which, and Kim, you were saying you know something about why it's called that. Sure. Um, well, uh, the Fringe started in 1840, or 18, sorry, 1947 um, as a way to sort of celebrate the end of World War II to get, you know, people more interest, back interested in the arts um, and that kind of thing. And what they, they had planned for some um, groups to come and do some performances in Edinburgh, um, and have this uh, celebration of the arts festival. Well, eight groups showed up without being invited, and they um, just said, we would like to also participate. And so everybody said, well, I think that's a great idea, and they will just put these guys on the fringe, mm. right? So um, On the outskirts. On the outs- yeah. Right. Like, so they were kind of on the outskirts and kind of forced, they forced their way in, but they were, I think they were accepted you know, willingly into, into the group. Um, and so they... Uh, they actually named it that, I think, um, a few years later. They, they decided that was a, the official name. Interesting. Would be. So it started as the Fringe of the Edinburgh Festival. Right, of this arts <laughs> festival. Right, right. right. Fascinating. And yeah. now it is... Uh, now it has grown up into this oh, huge thing. Huge. Now, is that original Edinburgh Festival? Does that still exist? Is um, or, or is that just dwarfed by this Edinburgh Fringe Festival? No, that, I think th- it has grown into the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. So that's it's this all one all one thing. Yeah, wow. absolutely. So, Doug, we haven't heard enough from you yet. So <laughs> why don't you tell us a little bit about kind of the just the kind of the nuts and bolts in general of what this event is. Well, I'm sure I have the, the numbers wrong. Kim probably has them correctly, but something like 3,000 shows at 600 venues, something um, like that. It's more than that venues, but yeah. Yeah, but like 3,000 shows over, you know, <laughs> they just one after another after another after another, and the streets are packed with people uh, trying to talk into coming to see their show. And it's it, it's phenomenal you can see any type of theater performing arts dance music uh you know and children's uh, shows children's shows magic shows comedians it was just crazy it was amazing you know you could spend uh 
you know, the whole month there and, and see a different show every day and still not even get close to uh, seeing them all. Wow. So how long an event is this? It's the entire month of August. Okay. And so you were there with this group of students from Carthage to do Eric Simonson's Up and Away. And, Doug, you were there uh, as, ten a, days. as an unattached uh, civilian visitor. As a squatter, I think. Uh, <laughs> I flew in there and found a willing person to house me for a while. And, there you uh, go. Good. And tag along with the theater group at Carthage, which were very wonderful and welcoming and uh, let me tag along. Was this your first time there? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And how about you, Kim? This is our, that was our second trip. We also took um, a play called No Name by Jeffrey Hatcher uh, about six years ago. Right. Tell our listeners a little bit about Edinburgh itself, the city, and then where this takes place within Edinburgh. I mean, is it just all over Edinburgh, or is there, or is it kind of like the county fair where there's sort of grounds? It, it doesn't sound like it's really that kind of thing. Well, uh, Edinburgh is the capital, I believe, right? And so um, there's Parliament there, and um, and there's what do they call the Royal Mile? The Royal Mile. And a lot of things happen between this. Royal Mile between Edinburgh Castle and then the Queen's Castle, Holyrood, ha- Holyrood, Holyrood Palace, Holyrood Palace, right? Mm. And so this is where ten thousand human beings are jammed in, uh, shoulder to shoulder, uh, place to place, and you know they start uh, every ballroom, every bar, every restaurant. I think has a theater in it. Um, you know they're forty seat theaters, and some of them are. Um, when we saw one of the shows, it was in a you know thousand seat theater Mm. but most of them are very small intimate spaces that i think are just made for the the fringe festival churches are opening up basements and things and and doing that and getting people to come in so there you know every block there's four theaters on that block so uh most of it's within the mile you know most of it's within walking distance i believe in my Mm -hmm. experience uh you know so you can go from one place to another place relatively quickly Mm. Yeah, we performed in um, the Radisson. There's a Radisson right on the mile, um, and we you performed mean the hotel? a hotel. Okay. Mm-hmm. And we performed in one of their conference rooms. So they had set up, you know, black curtains um, all the way around, and a seating arrangement that was sort of a thrust or like three sided um, seating arrangement. And we had about forty five seats, I think, in there. And they had three theaters in the Radisson. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. So three of their conference rooms were converted and, and that's just the radisson I mean, and that's the, just the radisson and hilton yeah. across the street had three more and then we walked right down this little cove and there was two down there <laughs> i mean yeah. it was just you know within a block there was was it, eight eight different locations on one block on one block yeah. Yeah, yeah. right it's 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 like a city turning into Broadway right. uh, 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 for 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 three for weeks, month, or three yeah, or four yeah. weeks. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I hope one of you can explain, Kim. You're probably in a little better position to explain uh, how these productions come to be a part of each Fringe Festival. And this happens every year. Yep, it happens every year. So what is because. From the little I've read about it, it doesn't sound like this is exactly a juried sort of event in which you, uh, but is there some kind of process by which you 
a granted access or given permission? Um, actually, when the Fringe Society was formed, I think in the 1950s sometime, when they became this sort of formal um, thing, they decided that they were going to go with this idea that anyone could come there and perform. And so they don't jury, they don't audition. Um, if you can find a place to do your show and a place to, and you can find the money to support yourself or have someone support you, um, and you can bring your actors or you know whatever your show is there, you can come. Really? Yeah. It's open to everyone. Wow. So, for instance, then Carthage, with this production of Eric Simonson's Up and Away, they had to find a place in Edinburgh, Scotland, where they could perform it? And, and what, right. what, well, what happens with that? Definitely this more the more modern version of, um, of it is uh, there are production companies. And so the Fringe has a number of um, production companies that you can uh, partner with that then will show you... Um, uh, we'll show you sort of how to how, show you the ropes and how to get everything done. And they, and they, they cover, um, they'll do your printing of your flyers for you. And so, um, it certainly has become, a, a you know, a machine that you can find your way into. And, but I think, you know, in the old days, it used to be, you could, if you found a place and somebody was willing to, um, give you a space to do it in, you could come there, but mm-hmm. it's certainly, it's, it's much more, um, organized now. Right. Your group was called MySpace, right? Wasn't right. Was that the production company? And they had... The like Space. T- it's called The, the Space. space. Mm-hmm. They had like 10 locations, and then they had they, they produced a number of shows. And uh, the n- wonderful thing about the way they did it was they allowed, uh, the production company allowed anybody who performed in their space to see other performances in their space for free. So ah. that was one of the benefits of right. the students got to see all of these shows and I got to see all of these shows for free because you were part of the same production company under the same umbrella under the, under the same, same umbrella, umbrella. yeah right. so it was a wonderful wonderful thing that Herschel um, yeah I Herschel did. Kruger plans and we this is the same company we used last time and it worked really well for us um, because you do get you know because it varies on the fringe um, what things cost um, and sometimes if you're out there, people give you free tickets because they just want to fill up the seats if they're not having, you know, if they're they're on their first week or their last week or whatever. Sometimes it costs, you know, a few pounds. Um, and some of them are actually, you know, more like 15 pounds. So it, it ranges quite a bit about how much you can pay to see something. Um, and it's nice when you can set a whole set of things are just free right off the bat, right. you know, and you can start with those. So, so this is not like, Going to the State Fair or Disney World or something, you're not walking through a big gate and plunking down a big amount of money and then you can go see whatever you want to see. You yeah, you right. just show up in Edinburgh and then each thing you want to see, it might cost you money or it might not, but that that's how it works. That there are massive good. books that have all the shows and all the times and you go it's it's daunting, you know, it's 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 you know two inches thick of all the descriptions of all the plays and oh my goodness how do you decide yeah how, how do you decide <laughs> well i went to a lot of free ones um, <laughs> and then at the end I, I was really interested in different spaces you know mm. you, you heard of some names and you know some of the shows i knew most of them you don't but i was very interested in seeing the different uh, theater spaces and how they use the spaces because everything is different every right. space is different well that's one thing i wanted to be sure to ask both of you about because that is one thing that seems like a predominant theme when you read about the event is that uh it is 
it utilizes all kinds of different venues, including venues that one would say are are uh, atypical, or <laughs> I don't know if there's a fancier term for it, but space is not originally intended as theatrical performance spaces get used for this. Can you give us some sense of some of those uncommon venues that where, where you saw things? Well, like I said, we we were in a small conference room, you know, so it's it's sort of blocked off and made to look and like a, the the stage is just like a an inch platform that's put out in the floor so that you can delineate between stage and and mm. audience and the chairs are set pretty close. Um, that was ours. La- the last time we went, um, it was in a church basement in a gathering room in the church basement. And so, um, you know, it had wood floors and a little higher ceiling, but there was still like sort of the black curtain and, you know, figured out how to put the, the set in there. Um, I was trying to think where else we saw one. Well, did we see sticks. That seemed to be like a school to me. We were walking upstairs right. and there was just a little... Um, uh, auditorium in that. Yeah. Of course, the National Theater was a huge, right, massive theater a, with thousands of seats. Um, I saw one. Um, I saw one man show in what in an uh, an older building, probably um, uh, like an, an 18th century building, and it was in this curved room, kind of looked like a, a bunker, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Um, but it was in one of the older buildings that um, I think, on a regular basis, is a is a multi-level bar, um, but this was in this space. They had painted it black, and it was curved ceilings, and um, you, it was very intimate. There was only probably like 20 chairs in there, and so um, that was interesting. Um, there's a lot of street performers, so you see everything on the street, too. Um, they have jugglers and fire eaters and sure. <laughs> all sure. kinds of interesting people on the street doing performances, too. So, wow. Well, and... I think, Doug, it was you who said that this isn't just theater, that there's other kind of performance that goes on at this, including just straight music, for instance. Is that something you see or not? Yeah. You know, I thought I was going to the Elton John show. And uh, so I went to this nice space, and, and it was packed. And uh, there was a bunch of young people um, with a band, and they sang Elton John songs. And that ah. was it. No storytelling. Ah. No no, they did very good. It was it was great. They sang well. Uh, not once did I learn anything about Elton John, nor did I think that he was Elton John. Uh, oh, okay. But it was, you know, so there was that type of situation. Um, you know, Kim and I saw, I don't know what best to describe it, a performance piece, a uh, play called, or I don't know. Performance time, piece, what, I think, is perform- the way. You know, called Sticks, which was a seven-piece band to start with. Um, they all um, had dialogue, and was a um, the main character was being interviewed uh, by their grandson. It was a grandson and granddaughter who were part of the band, and uh, he was interviewing grandma. And there was a light on stage that represented grandma talking, and uh, they interwove that with stories about grandpa who had Alzheimer's, um, and she was starting to. Uh, have signs and so he wanted to interview her and talk about their life and then they had music in that and they talked about Alzheimer's and they had some weird lighting and it was really cool and um, at the end uh, they passed out shots of whiskey and we had a toast to grandpa and we were all bawling our eyes oh, out wow. it, was, it was like we knew this man and, and it was so uh, creative storytelling and theatrical and they found some music and he uh, 
had played some of his grandfather's music and uh, so and how that music is... uh, affects Alzheimer's patients and so uh, all sorts of crazy things. And I saw a comedian who, you know, and we saw um, a name of a show we can't talk about on the air, but the blast part is Antigone, which was a very heightened uh, version of Antigone that, um, you know, right. little and rated R and uh, crazy. Just so all set, all different types of theater, all different types of performance art pieces. Um, yeah. There was even a musical we did not see called Trump the Musical. So, ah, um, you know, there's all sorts of things you can yeah. go to. Now, do you have a sense that the bar of excellence is pretty high just because or 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 is it or does that wildly vary as well i mean you've already painted a picture of a festival that's widely varied in terms of the kind of things you see is everything as far as you you're concerned very good uh, at no. the or, or no or is that wildly I, vary as well i think that the yes it's wildly varied it just depends on you know sort of who the people are, where they're, you know, what kind of performance it is. But um, as I told my students, you can learn from everything mm. you see. And so seeing all of the variety and all the different things and talking about what what drew you in and what took you out is all um, educational and um, learning experience. And that's why we go there. Of course. So. Absolutely. You can learn more from a a bad show than you can a good because a good show you just take the ride and go oh that was great <laughs> I love that yeah. uh, and a bad show you go oh how would I have changed that what right. I would I have done how would you know and you analyze things a little bit more Absolutely. but it is quite uh, a hit and miss and yeah. some of them are fantastic and some of our were like okay how much did it cost for them to produce that and uh, who's bankrolling that because uh, I don't know how they got that right how, how much of the festival are entities like Carthage College or the University of Wisconsin Parkside versus community theaters or professional theater companies, or is that also a, a, a wide variation? I think that's also a wide variation. We did meet a number of um, other college groups. There are high school groups that bring shows. Um, and then I, probably the majority, I would say, are um, you know people who are trying to make it into the professional world. I met... Um, a, a guy from Chicago, actually, um, who brought his, he, he's a, he's a one-man show sort of t- storytelling, and he brought his show to the Fringe to sort of try it out, see how it did, hmm. you know, get some feedback from people. Um, and then, you know, he wants to continue to write that and, and, po- and possibly make that into something bigger. Um, and so I think there are a lot of people like that, you know, hmm. bring it here, um, see how it goes, see what people think about it, um, that kind of thing. But so there's a lot of, you know, in that semi-professional in moving into the professional world. Right. I so also think that they sometime, um, don't want you to know who they are because, um, you know, I try to research them beforehand and it's, um, the Greg Berg theater or the Caritas theater or the, you know, names that you, you know, renegade or, you know, the outreach Mm. theater. Okay. Well, Mm. they don't say, uh, St. Joe's high school production of, you know, even though they are all high school kids, everybody's got a name for their, their company. You know, we are starting a company. So we just have this, this company name. So it's a little hard to to determine. Uh, like I said, I, I had no clue that this, one group was just going to be some young people playing Elton John music. Right. You know? yeah, not by the name of the show, not by the name of the company. Right. And it sounds like 
some of what you see is quite experimental, maybe groundbreaking, and many things that you're seeing are, in a sense, world premieres. I mean, Mm -hmm. works you absolutely don't know. Now, on the other hand, do people come to the Fringe Festival and do uh, Death of a Salesman? (laughs) I mean, things like that. I saw somebody was doing Grease. And you're in town. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And they did. uh, There were a couple of companies doing Shakespeare shows, Mm -hmm. Shakespeare plays. Um, I saw a production of Frankenstein. Uh, you know, it was yeah, an so updated version. Now, I think, I hope I'm not misquoting, but I think most of the shows have that time limit of about uh, an hour to 90 minutes. Hmm. So um, you're doing, uh, I did talk to, the, the Urinetown group was a coll- another college, um, and um, they did, they were doing the hour version of okay. Urinetown. So, you know, edited for the fringe. So I can't bring Carthage Opera Workshop to do Tristan and Isolde, which is five hours and 20 minutes yeah. right. long. Not at the Fringe Festival. Not at the Fringe Festival. <laughs> okay. Nope. Note to self. Note to self. <laughs> Kim, I want to make sure that I give you a chance to talk about one aspect of this that is so tricky, which is the fact that not only is there a time limit in terms of how long can this piece be, but also how long do you have the venue in question where you sure. are performing and it sounds like uh, that in and of itself is a real vexing technical challenge so explain to our listeners what I'm talking about sure um, when uh, you get to your time frame you're allowed to sort of congregate outside of your venue so we all you know get our stuff together the co- the actors have already come to my flat and changed into their costumes and um, put on their makeup and so we're already to go that way we pack everything that all the costumes that are going to be changed during the show into suitcases and haul them all to the venue because there's no storage space there you have to take everything in and out with you all the time and how far distance are we talking um it was about a 15 minute walk from my flat to the space and then the students came from other places to my flat because they they lived in other flats Mm -hmm. um so you congregate outside till the next show the show before you is finished um they they are doing the same thing so they're packing up and getting all you know running around getting out they get out you go in you get 10 minutes to set up before the house opens and so you have to go in get all of your props and furniture and costumes and everything set where they need to be in 10 minutes and then the house opens and the audience is seated in five minutes and then you go so um, you go you have you have up to an hour and a half. Our show was um, an hour and 25 minutes or, or an hour and a half, depending on the day. Um, and then you get another 15 minutes to get out. Wow. So five minutes for the audience to clear, 10 minutes to pack it all up again and get out so the next group can come in. Wow. And our show was at, our show started at 8.15 and there was still another show after us. So um, they go all hours of the day. So it's just a constant rotation of shows. Um yeah, so we got, like the Doug said, we had it down. You know, everybody knew their job, do your job, get it done quickly, get backstage, hmm. you know. How did the students like performing the same play for that period of time, for basically three weeks solid, day after day after day after day? Was that a positive experience for them, by and large? <laughs> well, welcome to your life, because <laughs> if you if you want to be an actor, you're going to be doing eight shows a week for, you know, however long a show is going to run. And so I think it was a good experience for them. Um, I think they were surprised maybe at how <laughs> how how exhausting it could be 
to do that every day, especially because we really did have to like haul everything there and, you know, set it all up every time, which is probably not what you would be doing. But um, uh, I think they all reacted very positively, though. They really learned a lot about what it is to do that kind of theater and maybe learned a little bit about themselves as well. Interesting. <laughs> I'm trying to also get a figure, figure out who's there to see these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of plays. I mean, are they all Doug Instinus? I mean, you know, directors of community theaters or, you know, theater aficionados, or is it just regular people? Are some of them from Edinburgh itself or other parts of, of Great Britain? Or, I mean... I think everybody in Edinburgh leaves for the summer because <laughs> they, and they rent out their flats and they make lots of money because, ah, uh, you know... Okay. Yeah, most of the people I talk to that are from Edinburgh, if you don't work in one of the, you know, service industries, you go on vacation. <laughs> oh, is that right? Um, but actually, I had asked, Doug and I had had a conversation about this because I thought, are, are, is, is everybody who's here just people who are doing shows and seeing other shows? Um, but we did, I did meet quite a few people who were there for the Fringe Festival. And then I did meet a family from Texas who was in, in Edinburgh on vacation and didn't know the Fringe Festival mm. was there. Whoa. And I said, oh, well, how did that, how do you, how did you react to that? And they were like, this is the best thing that's ever happened. Like, yeah. we were so excited that there's all these things to do. And so they were glad that they happened on the Fringe, which I can't imagine happening on the Fringe. No. But <laughs> Wow, that's interesting. That's like when Kathy and I went to New York City this, this earlier this summer, and we just Purely by coincidence, we were there for, for World Pride mm, <laughs> yeah. that very same weekend, and it was it was amazing. But I mean, that was just like a fun little bonus that we didn't right. know we were we hadn't bargained for, but right. we were it was exciting to, to, exciting to be there. But I do think the Fringe has a pretty good reputation, and there do there are people from all over the world. Mm. You hear all kinds of accents and and all kinds of people. So I would love to go back. I think it's just an amazing thing, you know. So there's it's a beautiful city. People were charming and wonderful the food was good uh you know if you're okay with rain then then you're okay it, it rains pretty much every day but, ah. th- but to me that was just part of the experience ah it's raining you know in scotland that's supposed to yeah <laughs> yeah you'd be sad if it didn't yeah, right. well, where's we, the sheep i need to see sheep yeah, you know right. and uh well and we just we the phrase was just wait 20 minutes and the, the weather will change so ah. <laughs> <laughs> it'll be different <laughs> so did you have plenty of time to do anything else aside from the fringe festival or did that eat up your energy and your time Oh, no, we, um, you know, we spent a little chunk of each day um, in different groups, um, what what you call busking, which is you're out on the Royal Mile, um, handing out your flyers, talking to people, trying to talk up your show. Um, so our students did that for a little bit of the day, but then they had the rest of the day to do other things, which you could go to museums or the um, uh, Edinburgh Castle is there, which is a really cool working castle, right? They still use it for the military um, and um, some other things. Uh, and then we, we did have a couple of days where we went outside of Edinburgh and did some castle tours, which was fun, yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, and then the the tattoo. I think they did um, a really nice job of organizing some activities for the students to go to. Um, you know, tattoo is this big military band from bands from all over the world playing, and that's an amazing experience right in front of the castle. And right. you know, well, the tattoo is the, the tattoo is historically the call to the um, call to arms, basically to come come to the castle, we're going to go, you know, do whatever that thing is. And so they've made it into a um, 
really wonderful, like almost two hour event where just um, uh, bagpipe military um, bands, really. bands, military, all, all, all from all over UK come and perform. And wow. it's very cool. So we got a chance to do that too. <laughs> As if so. there wasn't already a whole lot of exciting <laughs> but, stuff to, yeah, to experience. Exactly. So Doug, is this theoretically something that for instance, the Racine Theater Guild could talk about doing someday? And yeah. do you entertain any thoughts at all? Uh, about I did. It? I actually went on the web uh, site when I got back on uh, how to produce a show. It's all very vague. <laughs> you know, oh, between three and 5,000 for this and two and 4,000 for that. And um, I think I think it absolutely is something um, to do. However, it's a, it's a different um, experience. You bring... You don't bring a show to the Fringe Festival to make a lot of money. Um, mm. You go there for the experience. And like Kim said, many companies were trying out new material. Mm. In fact, we went to a comedian who plays all over the world who had a, a sheet. He said, okay, I'm going to try this joke. Was this funny? Uh, nope, cross that one off. And uh, really? he was using us as a test subject. Wow. And that was fun. And it was kind oh. of exciting to see something new and, and uh, that this guy was working on. And, uh, you know, things that you you won't normally get to see. And, and like I said, there's... Some of the houses only have 40 seats in them. Hmm. Uh, so, uh, and they're paying, you know, 10 pounds or 8 pounds. So it's it's not a huge moneymaker. It's all about the experience and learning and art, you hmm. know, and it's okay to, to go and experience art. And uh, I, I told Herschel that I was so, uh, those students are so lucky to be able to go to a place with all these artists and experience these things. Because when you get to America, I got to do Greece and I got to do Annie <laughs> and uh, I got to do Oklahoma. Right. You know, I don't get to see sticks and I don't get to see uh, weird Frankenstein and I don't get to see those things. And it's a, it's a wonderful educational experience. And uh, I learned so much and I was so grateful to be able to see things that I wouldn't be able to see uh, that wouldn't be viable uh, maybe in the United States. Right, but but work in the Fringe Festival, right. for sure. Kim, real quick, uh, what determines if Carthage takes a play? I mean, what, what prompted Carthage to take Up and Away by Eric Simonson to oh. the Fringe Festival? Or, or, I mean... Is there anything that keeps you from going every single year? Or, or? Uh, Money. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> crazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, no, but we... Um, I think... Herschel Kruger is sort of the person who started um, to started this idea that we should travel and do performances in other places. Um, and so we are trying to um, loosely do a schedule of like every three years, go to some kind of festival, some kind of place and um, and perform. And we have done so we started with the fringe. Um, we took no name. And then we did a, a collaboration with um, the Gaiety Theater in Dublin, and we took a show to Dublin to perform. Um, and then we went to the Crisis Art Festival in uh, Arezzo, Italy, um, and performed a, a show. And then now we've gone back to the Fringe. So um, I think it's just, you know, it's a curricular model for us that we really think it's important to travel a show, to take, to go see a foreign country. Like Doug said, you know, it's a great educational thing to see things that are not going to be necessarily American. Um, and I, I don't, I'm not sure how the idea happened, but I'm certainly glad that it did because yeah. I, I went to all four of those trips. Yeah. So <laughs> oh, that's, that's fabulous. Um, yeah, no, no. And, well, I mean, it's it's a little bit like taking choirs taking tours. Absolutely. To, uh, and yeah, and yeah it yeah. Uh, broadens a, a young student's life in in all kinds of ways. Well, 
as I as I figured, this has been an absolutely wonderful uh, conversation. I so appreciate both of you being such vivid storytellers and kind of talking about what it was like to be uh, in the midst of the Edinburgh Festival Fringe or Fringe Festival as it's come <laughs> to be affectionately known. Uh, Kim Instonis, Doug Instonis, I have really enjoyed this conversation and uh, I'm glad that you had uh, so much fun at the Fringe Festival and uh, took time in your busy schedules to tell us about it on the morning show. Thank you very much. Thank Great, you. Thank you.